everything, I mean everything, is spiritual. The most ordinary, the most everyday, the most secular, the most unseemingly spiritual things are actually spiritual. One of the biggest mistakes our culture makes, and it's actually one of the things that's kind of unique to modern culture, is that we create this separation between spiritual and secular. We get this idea that some things are about God and about spirituality, and other things are just ordinary and everyday. And one of the the biggest lessons that, that a maturing Christian needs to learn is this truth that everything is spiritual. And sometimes the things that seem most central to spirituality, like church and worship and reading your Bible, are not nearly as important in the story and the plan of God. They're important, don't don't get me wrong, for all those things, do them more. But they're not nearly as central as the things that very often we consider trivial. Or everyday, or just what I do, or what what my life is other than spiritual. That's why what we do every day in terms of our work, in terms of our school, in terms of how we live is so very important. And and here's the cool thing. When, When you start seeing the spiritual in everything you do every day, when you start understanding that, that it's true that the big decisions in life need to be weighed spiritually, but the little decisions in life need to be guided by what is spiritual, and you, you, you start realizing that, then all of a sudden you start seeing God in places you never saw him before. All of a sudden, things you just thought were coincidence actually start to become full of meaning. And all of a sudden, you start seeing a plan bigger than just you ever could imagine. And things that you thought were ordinary actually have implications that are internal in God's plan. Speaking of God's plan, one of the questions we're going to ask tonight, and we're going to speak to tonight, we're going to try to answer it, and probably will satisfy some and not satisfy others, is this the big question? Can my choices mess up God's plan? Can my choices mess up God's plan? So if I do the wrong thing and I get outside of God's will and I'm doing the thing I'm supposed to do, can I mess up God's plan somehow or another? Have you ever wondered that question? Is the big point God's got a plan, he's going to accomplish his plan, or the big point that we have choices and our choices have complication, uh, consequences and complications? And so we're going to talk about that tonight. So, so we're in this wonderful book, the book of Esther. And in the last couple of weeks, we've been discovering this book. And we've been surprised by this book because this is a very secular book. This is a historical book, a book that's about a king and, 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 and the most powerful king who ever lived. And last week, we looked at this king, we studied him, and we learned that although he was incredibly powerful, had the life and death over millions of people, and, and perhaps one of the most powerful men who ever lived at his time, actually in the history of the world, he actually was very weak because he was insecure and he was easily manipulated and he had no control over his impulses and then he was controlled by alcohol and, and he didn't have control over his mouth. And remember last week, and this is important, last week we said it was important that he didn't have control over his mouth because he was a king who the people believed he was semi-divine, he was like a demagogue god. And, and, and so when he spoke a decree, it was the divine words of a divine being. And so if he just 
Jesus creed something, he couldn't take it back. Because if he was a God who was constantly decreeing this way and decreeing that way, people would start questioning his decrees. And if they question his decrees, they're going to question him and maybe wonder if he's a God after all. And so this is a guy who shoots his mouth off, makes his huge declarations, and because of that, he gets himself in all, all kinds of trouble. Now, last week, we looked at the story at the beginning of the book of Esther, where what happened was this king had this giant party, like 180-day party, seriously, 180-day party, and then he crapped it off with a seven-day party. And after day seven, after he's had a lot of wine, he's shown all his riches and all his power, and he's just shown off for all his friends. This insecure king says, now let me show you the really cool thing I own. And he calls for his wife, who he treats like a possession, and says, get on your finest clothes, your best makeup, I'm going to display you so everybody sees how great I am because I own you. And, and Queen Vashti refuses to do this, and in a drunken rage, and because he's manipulated by his officials around him, he declares that she may never enter my presence again, she's cast out. In addition to that, I'm going to make a law for the entire empire that all women must respect their husbands and do what they say. Stupid law, foolish law, but he has decreed it now. And so now this king has has created this giant problem. Now, in the interim, from what we looked at last week to this week, historically we know that this king went off and he fought a war. He actually fought a war with the Greeks. If you've ever seen like the movie 300 or you know about the Battle of Theophily, this king went and lost that battle. Tried to conquer the Greeks, came back, didn't work out so well. So now he's back. And now the story picks up from that point in this story. Now, something you just need to remember that surprises us about the book of Esther is that God's not mentioned. And there's almost no mention of spiritual things like church or prayer or, you know, reading your Bible or declaring the Lord or any of that kind of stuff. So God is not mentioned, but here's the deal. God is everywhere. And what the author really wants us to see by not mentioning God, but making his plan so clear, is to tell us and let us understand that God is in the ordinary. And God shows up where he's not inspected. And in those parts of your life that you think God doesn't show up, or God isn't important, or you've kind of taken God out of that pretty life, those are the parts of your life where actually it's most important that you start seeing God in the place you work, in the school, in the relationships with people who maybe don't know God. And so when you begin to see that everything is spiritual, it changes everything. Well, let's pick up the story here a little bit and, and just see the plan of God playing out. So it starts when the king gets back from war and he remembers Vashti. In chapter 2, verse 1, we read this. It said, after these things... When the king's anger had abated, literally in the Hebrew it meant, it says, his anger cooled down. He remembered Vashti. (laughs) He remembered Vashti. And he remembered that she had been selected out of so many, and that he loved her, and that he had messed that up, and it was just a, a term of regret. He remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed against her, that he could never call her to him again because he had decreed this. You ever said something you wish you could take back? Well, that's what this king is living with in verse 1, verse 2. Then the king's young men, and you'd get this idea that this would be an idea that young men came up with, you know, 
The king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers over all the provinces of the kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, and under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch. And it's important you remember he's a eunuch, okay? Uh, the eunuchs were the people in charge because steps should have been taken so that they wouldn't interact with the virgins. You know what I mean. You don't need me to explain that. It's church. Come on, give me a break. All right, so he's a eunuch, all right? I didn't know how I was going to get through that, but I think we're all on the same page, right? Okay. Whew. All right, so he's a eunuch, right, who's in charge of the women, okay? Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young women who please the king be, uh, please the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. And so these young guys said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to send all our officials out, and they are going to, to require that the most beautiful women in all the different provinces be brought to the king. And they're going to be entered into this contest in which they're going to have, it's going to take like over a year. In fact, by the time where the Vashti has been deposed and, and Esther is made queen, it's like a four-year period. We're going to make this big thing, and, and, and we're going to require these women to go through this training and these beauty treatments. Now, here's the deal. A lot of time, Hollywood will get a hold of this story. Our people will write books about this, and they will kind of describe this like this was a really cool beauty contest. Okay, like these women all signed up, they were all excited, they could, nothing could be further from the truth. This is horrifying and evil and wicked. These are young girls who are forced to be taken away from their families, required to go through this process, and chances are, for the majority of them, it's going to mean that they may get one night with the king, and they'll spend the rest of their life in a harem living as a widow. And, and it's a terrible, horrible, evil injustice thing that's being done by, these king, by this king and by his officials. So, so let's go and read on, verse 5. So now there was a Jew in Susa, in the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. Now Mordecai is one of the four main characters of the book. And next week we're going to look deep, uh, two week, uh, next week we're going to look deeply at the life of Mordecai. Very cool guy. But he is the son of Jerah, son of Shimi, son of Kish, a Benjamite. So he's one of the children of God, the people of God, who's been taken away into captivity. Verse 6. Who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away when Jehoiakim, king of Judah, um, whom Jerusalem... Um, from Jerusalem, among the captives carried away with Jehoiakim, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Verse 7. He was bringing up Hadassah. Hadassah is a Hebrew name, and it means myrtle. And so this is myrtle. That was originally your name. Um, Myrtle, that is Esther. Esther is the name that they changed it to. They chose a more Assyrian name, and that name means star. And it's taken, uh, it's a root uh, uh, related to the word Ishtar, which was one of their gods. And so she went from myrtle to star. She's transformed and, 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 and taken on a journey, and the name change represents that. Now the daughter of his uncle, uh, she was the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father or mother. So important to understand, this is a girl whose parents didn't make it. Something happened to them. They died. They didn't make it in the exile. Uh, They were lost in some way. So she had no parents. So she had been taken in by her uncle Mordecai. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. When her father uh, and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter, verse 8. So when the king... King's order and his edict was proclaimed when the many young women were gathered in Susa and the citadel in the custody of Haggai. Um, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put into his custody. He was in charge of the women. And so this is the eunuch, remember. Now look at verse 9. The young woman, Esther, 
pleased the eunuch and won favor. Now, the reason I think that that's important is that she didn't simply win favor because she was beautiful, because the people she won favor with, the first thing is, he's a eunuch, he's not going to notice that. And so what you see is there's something about her character, there's something about her person, there's something about the wisdom and the intelligence and the strength of this woman. She is a star. She is absolutely amazing. One of the things we're going to see about her is that she's very shrewd. And one of the things we must understand about Esther and Mordecai is that these are two of God's people who are living through a terrible time when they're in exile and her parents have been lost and they're, they're trying to survive and all the people of God are in different parts of the ex- empire. And remember how we talked a couple weeks ago? We said that they were under persecution. And so she's doing the best she can in a difficult situation and she is finding favor with people. She is a remarkable person with remarkable gifts and right now she's using that to survive. Now, now look at what it says in verse 9. The young woman pleased him in one favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food when, when, uh, with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and a young woman to the best place in the harem. And so, again, accidentally, coincidentally, she won favor with the one person who could set her up for success. And so the eunuch put her in a situation where I'm going to give you a, a lot of attendance. I'm going to get you what you need, your food and your cosmetics first. We're going to put you to the front of the line. And we're going to give you an advantage in this horrible contest that she's having to survive. Verse 10. Esther had not made known to the people or her kindred uh, who her people were her kindred. So remember, she is the people of God, Jewish people. Nobody knows that because if they had known that, she would have been disqualified. She would have been put in, oh, well, you're one of those conquered people who are persecuted. We really are looking for somebody who has no nobility, a higher position. And so she hides who she is, and that will be important in a couple weeks, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And so Mordecai says, just keep your head down and play it safe at this point. Verse 11. And every day Mordecai walked in the front of the court to the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. So this is a process that's going on for weeks and for months preparing all these women. You say, how many women? Well, the historian Josephus says at this point there were 400 women who became part of this process. And that's just horrifying. That's terrible. It's an incredibly broken situation. But here in the midst of it is, is Esther who is making choices that are going to serve her well to help her survive. But also in the midst of that, clearly the favor of God and the plan of God is at work at the same time. And so it's not an either or, it's a both and. Take a look at verse 12. He says, now when, there, when the turn came for each woman to go into the king, after being 12 months under the regulation for women, since this was the regular period of their beautification, six months with oil myrrh, six months with spices and ointment for the women. Verse 13. When the young women went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem. Okay, the second here, in the custody of a different king's eunuch, that guy's, that guy's name, and, and, and who is in charge of all the concubines. So what would happen is the king would call, and after the morning, if she left or whatever, uh, the king, if he didn't call her back by name, she was put in a second harem where she would just live with the other concubines as pretty much a widow, and, and it was horrifying. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abila, the, uh, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her and his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing. Look at this. Except what 
Haggai, the king's unit, uh, who was in charge of the women, advised. And so instead of going through in her own wisdom, she asked what she should do and, and what she should bring. Now, now Esther was winning favor, look at this, in the eyes of all who saw her because of who she was, the choices she was making, and because the favor of God was on her without it ever being noticed, for, uh, without it ever being mentioned, verse 16. And when Esther was taken to the king into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, that, by the way, is a cold month. It would have been like our February, ironically enough. Verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And so this young woman who's just trying to survive is exalted to the point of being the queen. And, 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 and it's this unbelievable situation that seems secular and seems uh, random, but God is absolutely all over it, as we'll see it. Verse 18. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants, and it was Esther's feast. He also granted remission of taxes to the province and gave gifts to the royal generosity. And so now we see Esther being queen. And here, when we understand all the ins and outs of this story, and we read it for what the story actually is, it's a messy story. It's not the story that Esther would have chosen or Mordecai would have chosen. It's got ups and downs and twists and turns, and it just at times didn't make sense. Now, happily, our stories are never like that, right? I mean, our stories are, you know, here's the deal, here's the plan, here's where I'm going. Pretty much a straight shot in everything that I expected. The marriage, I, I, my marriage is just going to be just like this. My kids is going to be just like this. You know what? I'm not going to struggle with any kind of sins or any kind of faith. You know what? I'm going to live in a society in a time where I'm going to be treated fairly. I'm going to have great bosses. And there's not going to be anything unjust at all. You know what? I just All these kinds of things where the plan is just going to go just perfect, right? That's pretty much everyone's testimony. Can I get an amen? Not an amen. Not in that one. Of course not. Because here's the word deal. We live in a broken world with unjust things and evil kings and bad bosses and marriages that get in trouble and addictions that come and sins that sneak in. And there are times when we're doing the best that we can. And when we're in the middle of that story, we can have two thoughts to come to us that really can shipwreck our faith. One is, is that one, this is a bad plan. And God, you don't seem to be part of it. Some things have happened out in that secular world, outside of that church world, and it's just wondering where the heck you are. This doesn't seem to be planned. And the other thought we can have is that apparently, God, I have done something to mess up your plan. I have, I have apparently, you had this great plan, and someone, I've done this thing, and you could actually point to some things that you've done wrong, and you can start saying that I have messed up your plan. And, 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 and what, what the book of Esther wants us to see is that we have a God that does messy. We, we have a God that, that walks along our stories. And, and, and while it looks like this and this and this and this, from where he's seeing, he's saying, yeah, you're bouncing all over again, but you're right in the middle of my plan. You know, the way I've tried to describe it to people, and, and this is an illustration or a metaphor, so it's not perfect, but it seemed to have helped a lot of people before when they asked that question, can I mess up God's plan? Well, this is kind of the way I think about it, is that God's plan is like a river. It's like a river. And here's the thing about river. The river's going to go where the river's going to go. And God's plan is going to be accomplished. Now, we're floating on that river. And there are times when we're not paying attention, so we hit this bank. And then we hit this bank. We might tip over for a little bit. We get it back in. And then we get run aground. But here's the deal. We're never off the river. 
Now, I'm, I'm not saying that our choices don't matter and don't have consequences. That's true, and we need to be wise about that and warned about that. But at the same time, the plans of God take into account the bonehead things we do, the good things we do, and the plan of God never is off outside of the banks of the river. And so when it seems to us that, you know what, this river is going this way and that way, because that's sometimes where the river goes, at the end of the day, it's still heading that way all along. And then we say, you know, understand, I keep messing up and hitting this and hitting that. Listen, God works even in the midst of when we're learning how to handle the canoe, as it were, in the most wonderful way. And, and so this is what we see in the life of Esther. Now, now, now to illustrate this, we're going to see that what we have in Esther is that she has been chosen to be in just the right place at just the right time to accomplish something that God has, has chosen her to do. She's right in the middle of God's plan, and she has no idea. So look what it says in verse 19. It says, now... Uh, in chapter 2, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now, what we know about Mordecai is that he, at this point, is some sort of lower-level official. He has a responsibility at the king's gate. He may take tolls or taxes or some other kind of thing. But to be sitting at the king's gate means you're part of the king's court and you're part one of the officials. Now, verse 20, it says, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people. And so she's still hiding out. She's still, you know, doing the best she can, getting through this orphaned girl who went through this, who survived in the most heroic way. She's still getting through it. Now, Esther had not made her kindred and people known, as Mordecai had commanded her, okay? For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she had brought up by him, because she knew she could trust Mordecai. We're going to see Mordecai is a man of wisdom and a man of compassion, and a man of strength, and, and, and she trusts him. And look what it says in verse 21. It says, In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bichthan and Tiresh, say, why do we get those names? Because the Bible's telling us this is a historical thing. This is a thing that actually happened. Those two guys aren't mentioned anyplace else. Two of the king's eunuchs, so again, these eunuchs, you got to watch with the eunuchs, who guarded the threshold became angry and sought to lay hands on the king. And so a plot burst out to try to kill this king, verse 22. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. So she's went, your majesty, hey, Mordecai, found out this thing, and he wants you to know about it, and, 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 and verse 23. When the affair had been investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged in the gallows, and it was recorded in the books of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. And then the story just goes on. Again, a story that doesn't seem to have anything to do with God, doesn't seem to have anything to do with the plan. In fact, the story doesn't even go that great. Because here's the deal. The king finds out about this and takes care of it, but he doesn't seem to reward Esther. He doesn't seem to reward Mordecai, but he still gets to be king, and Esther still gets to be queen, and she's safe, but the story goes on. Now, what we're going to see starting next week is that this has positioned God to show up and tell an amazing story. What we're going to see is a, 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 just a dozen, two dozen cons, uh, are, are, are just you know, um, coincidences that seem to just come together at the perfect time for God to say at the end of the day, the plan is exactly the way that I have intended it to be. You see, God's plan, it's like that river. He, he's got it at times where it looks like it's going this way, and it's going that way. He's got things going on that many times don't seem to be related to anything that we have done or that we're doing, but all of it he brings back together in the most profound way. You know, one of the things um, that I always come back to is God's plan in the life of our church. One of the things I love 
is when the BFC folks come, we just get to see a lot more miracles. It's just amazing. And it's, it's little miracles, like, like a crane operator who just happens to be a person who's going through a horrible time. And because he's going through a horrible time, he meets the BFC people, and they're actually able to tell him about Christ. And we have a crane op- operator who comes to know Christ. It's little things, like, like if these bolts don't come by UPS by a certain day, then the trusses can't go on, and just miraculously, the last delivery of the day for the, US, US, uh, the, the UPS truck shows up, and it's exactly what's needed, exactly the right time. It's the accident of the person who was planning to work this week, but actually they ended up working this week, and they had a skill that nobody knew about that we were just going to need exactly that time. All these consequences, all these coincidences come together. We could look back at the history of our church. We could look back at, at when my wife and I first moved here, and we just happened to meet Kendall Anderson, who was part of Valley Book Church, and, and, and he invited us to come in, and, and we were able to recruit from Valley Brook Church, and that's why Valley Brook Church is such a special church to us, and a couple years ago when they went through a tough time, that's why we rallied behind them and, and came, and I don't know, their new pastor, just, I, I had lunch with him and a bunch of other pastors this week, guys just doing a cool thing there, and all of that just seemed to be a bunch of coincidences that came together. Many times, those of you have been around, you've heard the story of how we got this property. When we bought this property, the bypass was just beginning, and they hadn't even opened it yet, and it just happened to be that that a fellow named Rick Padala just happened to be working for uh, his company that knew this was coming, and, and we just happened to write letters to all the family farm owners, and we just happened to find a family that owned this 66 acres of land, and, and how they just happened to have a father who was the chairman of deacons at a Baptist church, and how they were a Christian family, and how the one was an elder in their church, and another was married to a pastor, and how they hadn't done anything with this land for 20 years, and how they just prayed that it could be used for something good, and why they were willing to sell it to us for what it was worth before the bypass came in, rather than after the bypass came in, because we couldn't afford it. See, all those coincidences coming together, and maybe you've seen it in your life. Maybe something absolutely tragic has happened in your life. Say, God, this is just crazy. What's going on? But because you got the diagnosis of you lost the job or, or something happened to your kid, you can see how God did this, and he did this, and he provided in this life, and he taught us this, and he brought us back to this. And God, your plans are just way above. Now, maybe you're at a point in your life where some things are going on, and you're saying, I don't know how God could ever do anything good from this. Well, that's the deal. It's God's plan, and, and, and we trust in the middle of it. I mean, in the middle of the day, when, when that first person came and took Hadassah away, and her name had been changed to Esther, and she's taken away from Mordecai, the only safe place she's ever imagined, and she's brought into this, this room with these other women, however it worked, she had to be wondering, God, what's going on? This is a horrible plan. This can't be anything that you could actually use. And in the midst of that, you wonder where God is. You know, when people ask me, you know, is it our choice that's important or is it God's plan that's important? The way I've learned to answer that is yes. You say, well, how do you reconcile that? I always say, that's above my pay grade. Last time I checked, I wasn't God. I don't know. You need to know the answer to that. But what I know is that he works that all out in his sovereignty and his wisdom and his power in the most wonderful way. And when you begin to start seeing the God who is spiritual in everything that is secular, you start seeing that the little things that don't seem to have any meaning many times have the most meaning. And even when we feel like we've messed up his plan, 
he still has a great plan for us. Now, we have a great story we want to share about a person who understood this firsthand. Let's take a listen. I am Megan Pales. I've been coming to Jacob's Well since around 2011. I was born and raised in Jim Falls in a Christian family with two wonderful, still married Christian parents watching my mom and being in a Christian church. I just wanted to be that woman that raised a family and had a husband and I knew that God would open up my heart to that man when it was time and it didn't feel right ever. The man that was pursuing me and I was praying about him and I, I felt that God was saying the door was open and I saw this man preaching in front of people and crowds and a jovial spirit and a true heart for God. And I've been dating him for a while and we've been talking about engagement and getting the ring picked out and talking about a wedding. And we started losing our innocence and taking on a whole different role that we didn't even know that we were getting into. And pain came in and sin came in and hurt came in. And I got really low because I wasn't that Christian woman that I wanted to be. He started drinking and drinking a lot and then lying to me and, and He's struggling, he's sick. And so I try to get him help, which just became worse. I just stay in that, stay in that world because that's all I've ever wanted, right? Is this love. So why lose it? Stick with him, help him through it. And eventually his, his uh, verbal abuse turns into physical and sexual. And I had a hard time telling my parents and telling my, my friends and my family what was really going on with him. I didn't want anybody to know I hit it and I became more and more depressed and I'm laying there talking to my doctor and starting to have an ultrasound to see if what's happening and all of a sudden there's a heartbeat and I see these little arms and little legs and it was the hardest most beautiful time of my life. So now I have this baby and this new house and the father's in prison. Here I am, not where I thought I would be ever in my life. I bought a house with my boy and we moved in and we still live there to this day. And I didn't think I was gonna make it a year. And it's been nine years in this house, and this community has been the best thing. He is a jealous God. He wants us to want him and to seek him and to give all of us to him. And he knows the desires of my heart and he knew that I wanted to be that wife and have that husband. So in 2011, I came to Jacob's Well and like I said, my boy loved it. I didn't have to fight him. And I went into the sanctuary and I was in the third row back and I just remember standing there and listening to Pastor Paul and listening to the music play and I can tell you I don't know if anybody else was watching me but I was on my knees and I felt God's presence just wash over me and say that he's going to make me new and he's got me and I felt his big arms on me and just him saying I am beautiful and I believed it and I knew that this was our home. You know, here we are going to Jacob's Well and just um, breathing again and being in our studies and trying to live life right. And I'm not going to let Satan tell me that I'm worthless because of it. I know who I am in God's eyes. 
and I know I'm a child of God and that I'm beautiful and that I'm strong and that I can overcome anything with God's strength. This man was knocking at my door and and I married him this past August, 2017. And with this man, God gave me such security and comfort that he was okay for me. You know, it's not about the endings here. I'm married and it's all happy. I am still learning to let God be my all and not my husband. Our story's not ending, especially with God in our life. just seasons there are moments snapshots in time where it becomes so easy to lose confidence that God is with us it is a plan that there's something bigger on that we can't understand that we can't see but you know even if we're on that river and we tip the canoe we're still on that river and he'll get us back in and he's working that plan there are big things that affect our life and our story there are big things that are beyond our story and they're just beyond our understanding until we take a step back in eternity. I mean, that's one of the best things about, about heaven. God's going to tell the whole story. And we're going to go, oh, and oh, 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 oh. God, you just had this the whole time. And, and, and when those snapshots in time, when we lose track of just hope, and we start saying, I must have messed this up, you're not that powerful. Not that powerful. That God even takes our choices and our ups and our downs, and he works that into his bigger plan. You know, um, this is illustrated so perfectly in a wonderful verse of Scripture. Um, it's verse found in Romans chapter 5, 6. It says this, it says, You see, at just the right time, just look at that, at just the right time, at just the right time when we were still powerless, when our stories were messy, Christ died for the ungodly. See, God's plan, God's power, God's timing is perfect. And, 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 and in the midst of these times where it just doesn't make sense, we're drawn back to this. You see, Jesus Christ came at just the right time. You say, what do you mean it was just the right time? Well, it was just at the right time. Just some practical things. The whole world spoke the same Greek language. The whole world, for the first time in human history, for the first time in human history, was connected by a series of roads called the Roman roads. And they built them so armies could travel quickly. Well, they worked really well for missionaries, too. And at just the right time, when there was a spiritual openness in the Greek and the Roman world, unlike any other time, the, the, the vacuum of that, the message of Christianity, amidst a bunch of other competing ideas and religions, spoke and took it over by storm. At just the right time in the history of God's people, Jesus Christ walked into Jerusalem. He taught us. He lived. At just the right time, he picked up the cross. He carried it. He died. He he was laying in the tomb. And at that moment, it looked like a pretty bad plan. It looked like somebody somewhere had messed it up. But three days later, we just sang about it, Christ rose from the dead. And it was a pretty good plan. And that plan is still working out. It's working out in individuals' lives. It's working out in kingdoms and nations. It's working out in eternal ways that just are way above our pay grade. And so in the midst of that, what we do is we look for God in the ordinary. And it's so great in those times where he'll put together a string of what seem to be consequences and we'll see his hand working. And sometimes it's a little way. 
And we'll just go, okay, God, that's just you telling me, once again, I got this. Okay, God, you got this. You got this. And it's a reminder that he is faithful. So as we come today, we're going to come and have communion. And, and as you come to communion, I want to offer you a special challenge that I want you to carry throughout this week as you're, you're doing your devotions, as you're praying. And a couple weeks ago, I challenged you to pray and to watch for God. And, and as you're thinking about even getting involved in God's work this summer through BFC, you don't want to miss it. You know, all of that. Um, as, as we're getting for this week, I want you to think about uh, uh, God's plan in Christ. So that when we remember that just the right time Christ Jesus came to offer us this gift of salvation. Let me tell you a little bit about what we believe about communion. Here at Jacob's Well, we don't actually believe anything mystical or magical happens to the bread or the cup. We actually believe the crucial thing happened that still affects us today as part of God's plan is what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross 2,000 years ago. See, 2,000 years ago, the perfect man, Jesus Christ, came to earth and he carried all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our mistakes, all the things we think have messed up God's plan for us. And he's carried all that and he put it on the cross. He was nailed to the cross with that sin. And he took that and he was laid in a tomb and that sin went in the tomb with him and he came out and he left that sin behind. He got the plan back on track. And when we put our faith and trust in him, we become part of God's plan. We become part of the family of God. We become one of the children of God. And, and that's what we celebrate. And so when we take this bread, we remember his broken body and we eat it. And when we take the cup, we remember that his blood was poured out. And the Bible says when the blood is poured out, the life is poured out. His life was poured out so that we could have eternal life. So we take the bread and we take the cup and we remember Christ. And we remember how that worked out in his perfect timing. And this week, I want it to just be a challenge for us to just say, God, because I, you did that so beautifully, I'm just going to trust that you're going to work out my situation. I'm going to just trust in this part of my story where it's just not making sense. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to look to you because um, I just believe you got a plan. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and invite the ushers to come on forward, and they're going to prepare communion. As they're coming forward, I just want to let you know that we don't have a lot of rules here about taking communion. That is to say that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, put your faith and trust in him, you can come and take communion. We invite you to come to communion. It doesn't matter if you come here regularly or you're visiting maybe even for the first time. You believe in what Jesus Christ has done for you. We invite you to come to communion. And what we do is we do, ushers will dismiss you and you can just come and take the bread and the cup. You can take it right away or you can bring it back to your seat. If you have a gluten allergy, we have a gluten-free table over on the side here so that everybody can participate. Um, but as we do that, we do it in remembering the God who's been so faithful, the God who's executed his plan and is still working out his plan in Christ Jesus in so many ways. So let me pray, and then I want to welcome you to come to communion. Father, I thank you so much that at just the right time, Christ Jesus came, he lived, he died. We were still powerless. It looked like the plan had just, just, just come apart. It, it just looked like it was just hopeless. And you came and you brought hope into the world. Father God, I pray that as we take this bread and we take this cup, we take it in a spirit of faith saying, God, I believe that that, that you are still working in my story, my story as part of a bigger story. And so, Father, I just pray that every one of us here today could have a renewed confidence in you and your plan and a renewed confidence that you are with us in spite of all the things we may have done wrong or the fact we've convinced ourselves we've done too much that your love is more powerful than that, it's more fierce than that, it's more complete than that. 
And so as we come and receive communion, we do it in remembrance of the cross, remember with the price that was paid, and the plan that was so beautifully and perfectly executed. We renew our trust in that, and we do all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.